If you have your Bible, open up to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2 is where we're at. While you're turning there, I'm going to tell you about a weird development in my life. I've been thinking about rowing a lot. Um, And uh, yeah, it's odd. Um, I know, it's fine. My wife tells me I'm odd. I'm used to it. Uh, I've been reading this book, just finished it this week, called uh, The Boys in the Boat. Um, It's been out for a while. It's about the 1936 United States eight-man Olympic rowing team that won gold, spoiler alert, uh, in Berlin. Um, It was in 1936, and so at this point, if you hadn't caught up on the results, it's not my fault. Um, They defeated defeated, uh, Germany and Italy under unlikely circumstances in front of Hitler at the Berlin Olympics, and it's just an incredible story. And so that got me thinking about, I wonder what it would be like if I was on a crew, and I immediately realized that wouldn't go very well at all. Um, In fact, one time, uh, one time, I got a canoe, I borrowed a canoe from a friend and, uh, and decided to take my oldest uh, son, Cade, out for a little paddle uh, on a lake that, that was near our home. And, um, and so we, <laughs> I mean, you already know where the story's going, I don't even have to tell you the story. I fell in the lake, like that's what's happening, right? Um, we start easing out and kinda, I get Cade positioned, got his life jacket on, and I'm kind of like pushing the canoe out there. And I, I, I don't even get in the boat. It's just like one foot in and I do the whole wobble and then boom, we're in the water. That was the end of our canoeing career. <laughs> Haven't tried it since, won't try it again. Um, but this, this book, and I highly recommend it, it's, just, it's great, but they, it's just fascinating to hear all that goes into a successful rowing team, a, success, a successful crew. And this boat has eight guys in it, plus a coxswain at the front, uh, giving orders, and they're able to row at incredible speeds on this tiny boat. I mean, I drove uh, over uh, the bridge on University Boulevard the, uh, yesterday morning, and there was a two-man crew out there rowing in the river. It was really cool. And just the boats are so small, if you've ever seen one of these things. It's incredible. They call them shells. They don't even call them boats because they're so little. And the, 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 the skill it takes and the precision it takes to row at speed and to stay upright, which is what's amazing to me, uh, but then to row in unison um, is, just, is just fascinating. And as I've been thinking about rowing, uh, it's not going to surprise you, I've also been thinking about our church quite a bit and thinking about uh, this season in the life of our church and where the Lord may be taking us and what it may take to get there. Uh, and, and there's a lot of parallels. And then it kind of all coalesced around this text uh, this morning. And so in, in our passage this morning, which is Colossians 2, 1 to 7, um, I, I want to see uh, what the Lord might have to say to us through his word about our future, about who we are and where we're going uh, as a church. And so uh, I'm going to read uh, Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dive in. That sound good? Colossians, thank you. I appreciate this side of the room. <laughs> Love you guys. Colossians 2, beginning of verse 1, says this. Paul says, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and those at Laodicea and for all those who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Verse four, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Verse six, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word this morning. We thank you 
that it is alive, that it speaks to us, even today written thousands of years ago for a people in a particular place, but you intended for it to speak to us in this place on this day. And I pray that that's exactly what would happen here. That you would remove any barriers, myself very much included, from this text, and we would see you clearly, and you would speak to each and every one of us here. You would draw us to yourself, and you would send us out here on mission for you. In Christ's name, amen. Keeping up with the theme that we've been going, the Apostle Paul is set, this letter is all about maturity. Going back uh, to, to verse 28, he says, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. And here's the goal. He says that we may present everyone mature in Christ. The point of what Paul has been saying and what Paul is going to continue to say is that believers and Christians might be presented mature in Christ. And in our text this morning, Paul says, hey, this is the goal, maturity in Christ, being grown up in, in, in Jesus. And here's what it looks like. Here are the marks of a mature believer. He says, I want you to be encouraged in Christ. I want you to have some encouragement that comes from your faith. I want you to have unity in Christ, he says. I want you to be knit together in love, it says in our text. He says, I want you to have some certainty around who Jesus is and what he's done and what that means for you, right? He says, then I want you to have some stability. He uses all sorts of language in verses four, five, six, and seven around stability and being rooted and solid in our faith. And then he says, I want you to move forward. I want you to walk forward in your faith just the way and that you began. And we've talked about some of these things before, and we're going to talk about some of them in the future. And so this morning, we're going to zoom in on just two of these things, a two-point sermon this morning instead of three. You are in luck. <laughs> unity and stability. That's what we're going to talk about, unity and stability. And the whole idea of this letter is that unity and stability and all of these marks of maturity, they come from a life centered on Jesus. With Jesus at the center of our faith, our theology, our life, our church, our families, our work, Jesus at the centerpiece, preeminent over everything. When we do that, Paul says, you begin to mature and you begin to be developed as a Christian. You begin to grow in your faith. And so the first thing we're going to talk about this morning is being centered on Jesus and how it produces unity. Centering our lives on Jesus produces unity. Look at verse two with me again. He says, I want their hearts to be encouraged. And then he says, I want them to be knit together in love, knit together in love. This unity, keep in mind, this letter is written to a church, right? At a time and a place, uh, but it's for our church as well. It's for us to understand as well. And Paul is basically saying that when a body of believers centers themselves on the person and work of Jesus, unity is an outflow of that. When a, when, a, when a church, when a congregation is focused on Jesus, who he is and what he's done, they become unified. How? By centering Jesus on everything we have to do. So what does that mean? It's a, the logical question. What does it mean to be centered on Jesus? What does that look like? How do we know if we've achieved that? Well, it looks like it in every sphere of our world that Jesus is the centerpiece. He's the foundation. He's the cornerstone. Whatever words you want to use. In your personal life, Jesus is it. Jesus is the reason you get up in the morning and get out of bed. It's not for your family. It's not for your job. It's not to care for someone else that maybe matters to you. None of those things are the reason you get out of bed in the morning. The reason the Jesus-centered person gets out of bed in the morning is to glorify God in their life. That's why they get up. They may go to work. They may care for someone. They may have a job. They may have stuff to do. But they do that under the banner of glorifying Christ. Jesus is the centerpiece. 
Same is true in our families. If we're going to have Jesus-centered families, it means the priorities in our families change. They shift from what everyone else says they ought to be. No longer is our marriage about just being happy and having fun. Marriage then becomes about honoring God and being a picture of the gospel to the world. Our parenting becomes about Jesus as well. The goal isn't to make our kids as successful as possible or get them into college or make sure they get good grades or make them behave. The goal of our parenting is that our kids would love Jesus. A Jesus-centered life changes the priorities. It changes how we go to work each day. It's no longer about what we might achieve or the position we might uh, rise to or the money we might make. We go to work because that's the venue that God has given us to point other people to Christ. Paul summarizes this, the book of Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul says, listen, there used to be a way I live. That guy's dead. That life's over. There's a new life now. And that life is lived by faith in the Son of God who lives through me. It's what baptism's all about, isn't it? We're celebrating baptisms next week, right? Baptism is a picture of this verse. It's a picture of this change that happens where the old man dies and goes down into the grave and the new man is raised up to new life. That's what we'll celebrate next week in baptisms. And this shift, this Jesus-centered shift, it's, it's subtle because your life may look the same. You may still go to work, still cook dinner, still have to clean up, still have to go to the grocery store, all that. Your life will be the same. But the why behind the life is totally different. And it makes a huge impact on our life. I was talking to Jim Bryant the other day, and he was telling me that he has a, a couple of crosses on his cane, his walking stick that he walks with. And the reason he does is to strike up conversations about Jesus. I had a meeting with, uh, with Mike Hunter a few weeks ago, and he was late to the meeting. And I was starting to get annoyed that he was late to the meeting. And I was wondering, well, maybe I went to the wrong coffee shop. And you know, a few minutes go by, and he finally comes in. Great, he's here. He said, I'm so sorry I'm late. I, I pulled over on my way here to help a lady change a tire on the side of the road. Or a guy, I think it was a guy. I helped a guy change a tire, and I, I invited him to church, and we had a good conversation about that. All of a sudden, felt really dumb for being mad and really thankful for Mike. Me-centered people don't think like that. Me-centered people aren't looking for opportunities to talk about Jesus at the grocery store. They're not looking for opportunities to help someone in need. Jesus-centered people see the world that way, though. And they look for every opportunity they can to be a light to the world around them. Jesus-centered people say, given all that Jesus has done for me, how can I not look for ways to love and serve those around me? Jesus-centered people help us achieve unity as a church. And unity is vital to our mission as a church. And the reason it's so important is because our unity testifies to the truth of the gospel. Our unity as believers testifies to the truth of the gospel. The most profound passages in Scripture, I think, is a, is a prayer that Jesus offers to the Father, and he offers it for you and me. He prays for us. For Christians. In John chapter 17, he's about to be arrested and hung on a cross for our sins, and he goes to the Father in prayer, and he's been praying for the disciples, the 12 disciples in his midst at the time, and then he transitions in verse 20, and he says this. He says, I do not ask for these only, these disciples only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. Jesus is praying for us, and this is what he prays for us, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
Jesus says if they can be one, if they can be united, if they can be aligned, the world's going to believe that what they're saying is true. Pastors love to study church growth and strategy, and uh, there are bookshelves upon bookshelves. I have plenty of them in my office as well on, on techniques to reach people with the gospel, and I'm all for strategy and planning, and we do that, and we'll continue to do that. Man, Jesus gives us a pretty good church growth strategy here, doesn't he? He says, if they're one, if my people love one another, care for one another, the world will know that what they're saying is true, and they'll have an audience, and they'll be able to hear the good news of the gospel. You see, unity has an attracting effect, doesn't it? We want to be a part of a group that is together, that is unified, that is on the same page. In the same way, disunity has a repelling effect, doesn't it? Ever maybe been to a dinner party, been out with someone, and the husband and wife start arguing a little bit, right? And it's not socially acceptable, acceptable to full-blown argue, so they just kind of snip at each other. And it gets real uncomfortable real fast, doesn't it, right? You'd be at their house, and they're arguing about something, doesn't matter what. All of a sudden, everybody gets real servant hearts. It's like, oh, I'm going to go see if there's some dishes that can be done somewhere else. Like, we're, I'm like, let me get out of here. Why? Disunity pushes people away. Nobody wants to be a part of that, right? But unity, a group of people aligned, a group of people who love the same things, care for one another, support one another, encourage one another, are there for one another. And who doesn't want to be a part of that? I just think about the world that we live in, right? It's not the most unified place on earth, is it? There's factions any way you look. What a testament it can be to the world, who Jesus is and what he's done, if we, the church, can be on the same page, focused on the same thing, driving towards the same mission. You see, unity also enables us to achieve our mission. Jesus had a mission, so the church has a mission. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus said, my mission was to seek and save the lost. Jesus said, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus said, that's my mission statement. And then he gives that mission statement to the church. And so when we are Jesus-centered people, when we're so focused in on Jesus, his mission is going to become our mission, isn't it? And when we're Jesus-centered people, we get focused on Jesus' mission, and it becomes our all-consuming passion. And that leads to unity. When I was an undergrad, I used to love to do uh, summer camps, lead youth summer camps, and um, I got involved with an organization called FCA, Fellowship of Christian Athletes. I'm sure many of you have been a part of it or familiar with it. It's a great organization that seeks to reach students and athletes and coaches with the gospel through sports. And FCA has a camp every year in Black Mountain, North Carolina, very close to where our kids just went to camp um, last week. And I was uh, signed up to serve on staff there as a huddle leader. That's what they called it. It was just a camp counselor. And I was going to be given a group of, of 12 uh, football players from across the country, different teams from all different places. They were going to put them together in one group. And that was going to be our group for the week to learn about Jesus together, to study together, and all that kind of stuff. And so I get there a day before the campers, and they give us our training schedule for the day, and, or our, our schedule, our itinerary for the, for the week, and what's coming and what we can expect. And I look at the schedule for day one, and it says buses arrive. And then the very next thing on the schedule is team competition. And the next thing on the schedule after that is small group Bible study. I'm like, yeah, I think there's a mistake. This is wrong, right? Why would we start with competition and then have small group? We don't even know each other. How are we going to get into a small group? We need to have time for icebreakers or, or some way that we can connect and, and get to know one another. These boys are coming from all over the country. They're not going to be a group yet. Why would we jump right into Bible study when all we've done is just play some sports? Something's off of the schedule. 
I was dumb. The experts, they said, just trust us. This will work. And so sure enough, the buses roll in, the boys get off the bus, and they drop their bags in their rooms and immediately put on their athletic gear, put on their cleats and the whole nine yards, and we head out to the fields. And for two hours, we compete as a group against the other groups. And we fight, and we sweat, and we bleed, and we get muddy. We're playing steal the bacon with giant tractor tires. We're doing tug of war. I mean, just any kind of physical contest that you can imagine, we're getting after it. No introductions, no what's your name, where are you from, just competing together. And we leave the fields and go into small group room. And let me tell you, that group acted like they'd been best friends for 20 years. Why? Because they had a common mission together. We didn't need icebreakers or get to know yous or name tags to become a unit to bond together. We had a mission. And when you've got a mission, nothing else matters. You link arms and you say, we're going forward and we're going to get after it. And those boys have spent two hours sweating out there doing it together. We didn't need to do anything else. They were ready. They were a team already. The church is the exact same way. We have a mission. And if we're going to be a church passionately committed to reaching the lost with the gospel in our community, we've got to be united. And the way we unite is by focusing on the mission. Here's the thing. We can go back to our rowing illustration maybe. Everyone pulling towards a common goal, towards a common mission, it doesn't mean a hill of beans if we can't keep the boat upright. Stability is important as well. It's not enough just to have unity. We also have to have stability. And centering our lives on Jesus produces stability as well. Look at the second half of our passage, verses 4 through 7. Paul says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I'm absent in the body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Paul says the other mark of maturity I want to see in you is some firmness, a stability in your faith. Not able to be tricked or deluded, it says here. But your faith is firm, has deep roots, it's well established. These are all words of stability. And the reason this is such a big deal is because we have an enemy, church. Do you know that? We have an enemy out there. We have an enemy that wants to knock us off course, that wants to rock the boat, that wants to do whatever he can to keep us from accomplishing our mission of proclaiming the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done. He wants to do anything he can to keep you and I from making it to the end of our race, mature in Christ, ready to spend eternity with Jesus. He's doing whatever he can to chip away at our faith so that we don't make it. And Paul says, I don't want you to be tricked by any of these plausible arguments. I don't want you to be tricked by anything that sounds true but isn't. I want you to know for sure who Jesus is and what he's done. I don't want you getting off track. I want you to be founded, rooted, stable in your faith. You remember Paul's talking about false teachers here in this text. He's speaking to a church that's maybe combating some false teaching, some errors. And the thing about false teaching and, or deceptive teaching 
is that it sounds plausible. That's the whole idea, right? The entire uh, Jehovah's Witness evangelism strategy and Mormonism evangelism strategy is built on this, right? Is that their faith sounds a lot like Christianity. They use some of the same language, some of the same terms, some of the same approaches they have, some of the same scriptures. And so when you get into a conversation with one of these, they, they begin to kind of say, it begins to sound plausible. It's like, oh, maybe that is okay. Maybe I have just got this one little verse wrong and it messes the whole thing up. And, and they begin to chip away at your foundation, right? We're relatively well-trained as a culture, and as, uh, if you're a Christian, you, you probably know, hey, we need to be on the lookout when someone comes to my door evangelizing, but there are other plausible arguments that derail Christians too. There are other belief systems or ways of thinking that sound true, that have a, a, a hint of truth to them, but they're not. There's the plausible argument of legalism. The plausible argument of legalism Sure, Jesus loves me. Sure, Jesus died on the cross for me. But if I want to make sure he keeps loving me, I better follow the rules. If I want to make sure he keeps loving me, I better do enough good deeds or else that kind of love will dwindle and it'll fade away. In fact, if, if I want to be sure he keeps loving me, I, I better make up some new rules that aren't even in the Bible and follow them. And I, I also better make sure everybody else follows them too. Starts good, sounds true. The next thing you know, we're off track foundation is chipped away. The opposite of that argument is the plausible argument of licentiousness. The plausible argument of licentious, licentiousness says that because salvation is by grace through faith and it's a gift, not by works so that no man can boast, it's great news. All the sins are paid for. Jesus paid it all. We sang it at church. I heard it one time. That means I can do whatever I want. Jesus paid for my sins, so I'm going to commit as many of them as humanly possible. The Bible says, no, 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 no. Sounds true, but that's a lie from the pit of hell. There's others. Plausible argument of prosperity. Maybe you've heard this one because God loves me and he wants to bless me and he wants to give good things for me and he has a future and a hope for me. That if I have enough faith, because faith pleases God, if I believe enough and will myself enough to believe, God will give me what I want. And in fact, there's a direct correlation between how much I believe and how many good things God gives me. So if I need more money, I'm just going to up my belief meter a little bit. If I need a better job, if I want that relationship, if I just believe more, I can manipulate God into giving me what I want. It's a lie just as well. And we could go on and on. These are just a few. There are others. But the point is this. These arguments are plausible because they're close to the truth, but they're not the truth. A Jesus-centered life helps us maintain stability because a Jesus-centered life leads to a measure of certainty about who Jesus is, what he's done, and what it means for me. That's what he says here in verse 2. He says he wants people to reach the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. He says when you really get it, when you understand Jesus... These plausible arguments aren't so plausible anymore. You may have heard the illustration of the Secret Service who's tasked with investigating uh, counterfeit money. Did you know that? It's crazy. They protect uh, government officials, but they also their other job is to detect counterfeit money. When they train Secret Service agents to find counterfeit money, their first priority is to study the real deal. They study genuine currency instead of fake currency, and they learn how it feels, uh, what, how the light looks uh, when it shines through it, kind of how it folds, uh, what the markings are, and they get to know the real deal so well that when someone hands them a fake, they go, no, that's not it, because I know the real thing, and this isn't it. Paul's saying, that's what I want for you, church, for you to know Jesus so well and be so enmeshed in his life, so connected to him 
that you can't be thrown off course because you know the truth. And this Sunday morning worship gathering, gathering that we're in right now, it's foundational to the life of a believer. This, this is part of that Jesus-centered life. This hour, maybe an hour and five minutes, depending on the preacher's mood, this forces us to sit down and engage with God, engage with God's word, engage with the truths about Jesus. We sing them as we've done. We pray them together. We encourage one another with them. We preach them. We sit together and we focus on the Lord. Your weekly life group gathering, it brings stability to your life by connecting you deeply with a group of people who are moving in the same direction as you. They're going to hold you accountable to this Jesus in our life. They're going to encourage you in it. They're going to support you in it. They're going to correct you if need be in it. Your personal time alone with the Lord helps you do the same thing. All of these rhythms of the Christmas Christian life help us focus on Jesus. And all these little habits, they're like adding bricks to our foundation, little by little by little over time. You know, a lot of times I'll, I follow a lot of churches and pastors online, social media. Um, and pastors have a bad habit sometimes of, of telling the church how epic church is going to be, right? It's going to be an epic Sunday. It's going to be incredible. It's going to be so awesome. And there are absolutely epic Sundays in church. Life change happens in Sunday morning gatherings all the time. And you may have had an epic experience at church. But let me tell you, church is not epic every week. It's just not. It's not the biggest show on earth, right? But let me tell you what church is and what life group is and what spending time with the Lord daily is. They're little deposits into your foundation over and over and over again that eventually builds you up into someone who's mature in Christ. We don't come to church looking for this epic show. We come to church to center our lives on Jesus one more time for one more week. And then we do it again the next week and the next week and the next week until Jesus comes back. And here's what's cool about that. When we do that, this Jesus-centered life, it produces in us thankfulness. It produces in us thankfulness. Our passage today, it closes with this encouragement to keep going in the faith the same way that we began. Verse 6 says, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Do you remember when you came to Christ? Man, it's fun. It's fun watching someone put their faith in Jesus. You see the joy well up inside of them when they realize that the sins that they committed, the, the failures in their life, the mistakes that they've made, the guilt and shame that they've been carrying, they can now cast them all on Jesus. And he takes them to the cross on their behalf. And they are free. And he does it all by grace through faith. Paul says, just as you received him, so walk in him. In other words, let's don't move on from that. Let that still bring thankfulness and joy and freedom to our lives. Let's still meditate on who Jesus is and what he's done for us and let that inspire us to walk forward with him day by day in gratitude and thankfulness to Jesus. And I can promise you, based on God's word, if you orient your life this way, around Jesus, if he's the centerpiece of your life, of your family, of your church, of your world, thankfulness will be the theme of your life. Because you'll just be so overwhelmed with all that Jesus has done for you and for me. As we close, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a firm believer that the Bible, that God's word, when it goes forward in any way, shape, or form, it demands a response from us. Whether it's in your personal quiet time with the Lord, Bible study and life group or something like that, or the Sunday morning sermon, we should always be asking the question, so what? What do we do with this? What does this matter? How do I respond to this? And I want us to do that together before we close this morning. 
I want us to sit silently in prayer. So you can close your Bible, you can close your phone, whatever you're doing, we're kind of wrapping up for the morning. I want us to enter into a, a posture of prayer, a posture of, uh, of approaching the Lord. And we're going to ask the Lord, how are you calling me to respond? Lord, how are you calling me to respond to the word? He might say that you've let something else take center stage in your life besides Jesus. And he may be calling you to acknowledge that and to commit to putting Jesus back in the center. The Lord may be tugging at you to be an agent of unity in some space in your home or in our church. Acknowledge that and commit to following through with it. Maybe the Lord's revealed to you that you've taken your eyes off the mission of reaching people with the good news of the gospel and you've begun to become more and more me-centered in your life instead of others-focused because of Jesus. Spend time praying with this time for someone who needs Christ who's far from the Lord and needs him. Or maybe you've allowed yourself to be persuaded by a way of thinking that sounds plausible, but it isn't biblical. Ask the Lord to help bring you back. Whatever it is. Maybe there's something else. Maybe none of this is it. That's fine. A lot of times the Lord doesn't even use what's going on here. He just needs you to sit still for a minute so he can speak to you, right? Whatever the Lord's laid on your heart, we're going to take just a few seconds together to pray silently there in your seats. And then when we're done, I'm going to close, all right? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for sending him to pay a price that we could not pay, to die a death that we deserve to die. And we thank you for raising him from the dead, defeating Satan, sin, and death once and for all on our behalf. And we thank you that by putting our faith in him, we can have life with you for all eternity. We can find ourselves secure, stable in you. Lord, I thank you that you have unified this church, the people of this church around that truth. Would that continue to be the case day by day by day as we walk forward? Lord, help us respond to your word that we wouldn't just be hearers of your word, but we would be doers also. And so whatever it is you've placed on our heart in this time to do in response, would you give us the courage and the faith to do it? To take a step forward tomorrow to center more and more and more of our lives on you, the author and finisher of our faith. We love you, Lord. We thank you for this time together. Go before us into our week, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.